God's word says this. Early in the morning, he came again, that's Jesus, to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone might have some. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let us bow our heads and pray for uh, our reception of this passage this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We pray through him. God, we know that right now he is interceding on our behalf, on behalf of his children bringing our prayers up. So God, we pray through him. We pray that we would honor Christ this morning as we have gathered to worship him as our Lord and Savior. God, we pray for our hearts as we search this passage, a powerful passage of forgiveness, God. We pray that we receive your forgiveness, Lord, and that we walk in light of that transforming grace that you have given us through Christ. It is in his name that we pray. All of God's people said, amen. I want you to think of a phrase this morning, and the phrase is this, just a little off course, right, when it comes to directions, just a little off course. My wife loves the show, I think I've shared this in the past, the reality TV show, The Amazing Race. Anybody watch The Amazing Race where these folks race around the world? But her and I know this full well, that we would fail miserably if we ever attempted to be contestants on this show, why? Because we both are directionally challenged, okay? We have a terrible sense of direction. We get lost on almost every road trip that we go on. Just veering a little off course has made travel, you know, difficult at times. We end up in destinations that we weren't headed to, trying to figure out where we are. Just a little off course even applies in this age of GPS. Anybody have the GPS kind of glitch and take you to the place where you're not supposed to be? Uh, This amazing computer helps us directionally challenge people, but even a GPS can be glitchy at times. Uh, I must confess, for spring break recently, we, my family made the difficult decision to soak up some warm Florida sun in Panama City. After a nine plus hour drive, we rolled into town, you know, ready for lunch, ready to eat. And Karen looked up a a local restaurant that she wanted to go to. We plotted the course. We put it into our phone, into our GPS. Except when we arrived, it wasn't where the GPS said it was, where that restaurant should have been. And I told her in my grumpy, hangry dad voice that the restaurant had probably just closed down and it was gone. Let's find somewhere else to eat, like McDonald's. So... But we continued to drive down. It was in this little strip mall. We drove past one of the the big box stores and discovered the GPS had taken us to the wrong location. The restaurant was actually on the other side of the shopping center. We ate. We were met at this place uh, with some incredible food. The service was great. The guys were super helpful that owned it. And so I wanted to make sure that I notified the owner of the GPS mishap. He knew about it, but seemed unwilling to contact Google to fix the issue. And, and I warned, like, hey, man, we thought your restaurant was closed down. If GPS keeps leading people to the wrong place, you guys aren't going to what? They're not going to survive. They're going to go out of business. He just shrugged, 
right? But a little off course can be a costly mistake, couldn't it? How many people have gone to that other location and never made it to the poor little poke bowl place in Panama City? Lastly, in nautical navigation, so out in the ocean, just a little off course can prove to take a ship in a drastically different direction. Did you know that for every one degree of difference in direction over a 60-mile period, you will end up a mile off course? You, now, if you're traveling across an ocean and you multiply those 60-mile segments over and over and over again, you're going to be way off from your destination, right? Just a little off course, leads us to be lost. As we read through this trap scenario set for Jesus, if we pull back just a little bit, we may question, like, how'd the religious leaders end up here? Again, the the one they've been waiting for, the Savior of the world, he's right before them, but they've plotted, right, just a little off course from the law for generation after generation And possibly the people of God had the the best of intentions to start off the journey, but a little off course over and over again leads you what? Far away from the destination and lost. Hopelessly lost. Kind of like Karen and I on every road trip we're on, right? But, But there's hope, family. There's hope for a course correction through the wisdom, forgiveness, and transformation that Jesus provides. That brings us to our main idea. Our main idea is this. Jesus, simply put, Jesus has the power to forgive sin. Jesus has the power to forgive sin. At the heart of this passage is the mercy and grace of God. The overarching theme and point is that Jesus didn't come, as he says in in John 3, 17, he didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Forgiveness is a crucial theme in Scripture, right? If we think back to the Gospel of Luke, when the friends of a paralyzed man recorded in Luke's Gospel lowered their friend, their buddy, down through the roof, right? They dug a hole through the roof to lower them to where Jesus was teaching. He said this, it says, and when he saw their faith, he said, what? Man, your sons are, or your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. Even in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system drew out the concepts of forgiveness that would come to be fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. David prayed unknowingly at that time, looking forward by faith to the ultimate sacrifice that alone could atone for his sins. In uh, Psalm 51.9, this beautiful prayer of repentance, uh, uh, David cries out, hide your face from my sins, notice this, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Ultimately, we see forgiveness in this passage, but also throughout the whole of Scripture. And yet also in this passage, this is our first point this morning, we see kind of the wickedness and deceitfulness of man. We see the deceitfulness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The deceitfulness of the, of the religious leaders conveys the lostness of those that Jesus came to save. For, for generations again, right? They were a little off course and now they are way out in the distance because in, in reality, the scribes and Pharisees in this present passage that we're studying this morning, they didn't really have a high regard for the law as one would think. It seems as though they do, but really the scenario exposes that they are using it for control and power, especially when it comes to confronting Jesus. Look into the passage, verses 2 to the beginning part of 6. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. 
all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman. Now, what's weird to me, she's caught in adultery. They bought the woman caught in adultery. Where is the man? Because last time I checked, it takes two to commit adultery, doesn't it? And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him. Now that original word there, test, means to see what he's made of, right? When I played football in high school, our coaches would run us until the point of death, basically, to see what we're made of. I want to know what you guys are made of. That's what my coach would say. They're here to see. We're going to see what Jesus is made of. That they might have some, what's the intent of that though? That they might have some charge to bring against him, right? To spoil his ministry. This is not, I think we all would agree, a high regard approach to upholding God's law. Their heart is not in the right place. They have purposefully brought this woman before Jesus. They interrupt his teaching, setting the trap, testing him to see what he's made of. Interestingly enough, the Bible has much to say about testing God, doesn't it? I'll leave that right there. Questions should fill the minds of the audience. And ours again, like, where's the man, right? Or could they have done something to stop the incident before it occurred? Because the law has some things to say about that as well. Both of these questions are important to actually upholding the law. But it is clear to Jesus that their heart's desire is aimed at stumping him and destroying his credibility and ministry. And if not for his, that's Jesus, his great wisdom, it would be, in fact, a very difficult problem. If he, if he fails to hold to the Old Testament teaching on, on an adulterous offense, he seems to blatantly disregard God's law, which is actually, is, if we tie this back to all that's going on, all the way back to John chapter 5, that's what they accuse him of when he healed a man on the Sabbath day, that he was breaking the law of God. And if he applies the legal punishment to this woman, he stands to endanger his ministry, I would say, in two ways, right? His reaching of the poor, powerless, and humiliated. He would stone the very ones he came to save. And two, he would endanger himself with the state. How would he do that, right? The Jews were, at this time, under Roman rule and were not empowered to exact corporal punishment, a difficult problem to solve that Jesus has here. But we know this. This is no ordinary man, is it? It's Jesus, the Savior of the world, fully God, fully human. Point number two, we see the wisdom of Jesus. We see the wisdom of Jesus. Verse six to nine. Again, this they said to test him, right? To trap him, to see what he's made of, that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. I want to stop there. Jesus pauses and takes his time, doesn't he? He doesn't just react. He doesn't yell. He doesn't rush to judgment. Jesus takes his time. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he takes his time. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone 
with a woman standing before him. The impossible situation, the impossible problem. Jesus has the wisdom to work through it. Jesus, the one in whom, uh, Paul would say this in Colossians 2, 3, in whom are hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. That's Jesus. Jesus sees right through the trap set before him. If he, if he doesn't call for the stoning of the woman, he's an Old Testament lawbreaker. If he does call for the stoning of the woman, he's a Roman lawbreaker and stands to receive the death penalty himself. But Jesus, hear this family, Jesus, God in the flesh, in his wisdom, he takes his time. Right? Can you imagine here? It says that they continue to pepper him with questions. He's, he, they, they question him. He reaches down. He's drawing in the sand, right? And they continue. What are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? They press in around him, and he responds. Logically, it's a brilliant and wise response. I think it's reminiscent of Solomon's great wisdom and approach to solving problems. Moreover, it reveals that these men are less than perfect, aren't they? They are sinners too in verse 7 and 8. We could easily, though, we could generalize this to just generic sin present in their lives, and I think we affirm that that's true. They're sinful men. But I believe that that's an insufficient explanation. I believe in this situation that the sin is much deeper than that. Sin is always present. And if sin kept someone back from carrying out the punishment prescribed by the law, it would have never have been held to at all. The logical reality is that they each, these religious leaders, either had had their own instances of sexual sin present in their life, and therefore they couldn't pick up the stone and cast the stone, or they knowingly trapped this woman with the intent to trap Jesus, a premeditated event. These seem like far more logical conclusions than just the general sin present in their lives. That's not to minimize sin in other ways. These men premeditated this instance and ignored their own fallenness in the midst of judging this woman. But what? The wisdom of Jesus shines through. It brings us through to our third point, the beauty of the forgiveness of God. We see in this passage the forgiveness of God. So what happens? Wisdom leads to forgiveness. And I want you to get this picture. Jesus says that whoever's without sin, you cast the first stone. And instead of running to the Savior, where do these men go? They turn their back on Jesus. And they walk away. (laughs) Grace and mercy before them. What do they do? They walk away from the Savior of the world. One by one, condemned in their sin, they walk away from the one sent to save. And yet, one remains. Who remains with Jesus? The woman caught in adultery. In all the commotion, she probably could have snuck out the back door and ran away. Her life was on the line. But who remains standing with Jesus? But the woman, the hopeless sinner, just humiliated in front of the crowds. She wanted to probably crawl away and just hide herself forever. Just her and Jesus. 
verses 9 to the beginning part of 11. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Notice she calls him Lord. And Jesus said, this is beautiful. Neither do I condemn The mercy and grace of God is present. The patience of the Lord toward this sinful woman. The Bible says he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And this is evident in the pardon of Jesus. But we wrestle with these questions. How can he just pardon this woman's offense? If she is the adulteress she's being accused of being, and we have every reason to believe so, regardless of the ill intent of the scribes and the Pharisees, then the penalty for her sin is indeed what? Death. God can't simply pass over sin. It must be dealt with. But Jesus says what words to her? Neither do I condemn you. Here, Jesus is applying his forgiveness to her as he looks forward to this. Jesus is looking forward to his justifying death and resurrection. That is to come in just a short while. Paul speaks of this, I believe, in Romans chapter 3. He says this in verse 23 to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm going to pause there and just let the weight land on the room. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the good news, though. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Here's something important as we look to how Jesus pardoned this woman's sin at this moment. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, right, and what he saw coming, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, hear this, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Christ here is pardoning her sin because he's looking forward to the work where he's going to take care of her sin on the cross. Every dispensation looks to the cross of Jesus, meaning every time period. Before the incarnation, the Old Testament saints looked forward to the coming Messiah and the forgiveness and mercy that he would bring by seeing it in types and shadows through animal sacrifice. Jesus came to fulfill his mission to seek and to save the lost by living perfectly, going to the cross of shame, willingly laying down his life in our place and raising from the dead for our justification. To make us, what does that mean? To make us right before the great judge. And if the Old Testament saints looked forward to the cross, where do we look? We must look back to the cross for the forgiveness of sins. We remember the deep love of Jesus in showing his righteousness by upholding every aspect of the law, paying the penalty that we deserved. That is exactly why Jesus can say to this woman, neither do I condemn you. Woman, your sins are forgiven. Believe this today. If if you have not looked to the cross, look to Jesus today and believe in him as Lord and Savior and hear those words from Christ come from his mouth in love. Neither do I condemn you. 
If you've placed your faith in Jesus, take hold of forgiveness and live a transformed life. This brings us to our fourth point. We see the transformation of his people. The transformation of his people. You see, Jesus didn't just pardon her sin and say, hey, like, go live it up. I got you covered. Continue to go sin that grace may abound. Everything's good. Rather, he instructed her. This is important because oftentimes the Christian message stops at forgiveness and it never talks about sanctification or transformation or changed life. Jesus says this. He said, neither do I condemn you. Then he says, go. And from now on, hear this, sin no more. What is he saying? Stop. I think reading into, uh, I'll preach on this next weekend, but reading into our next passage, Jesus says this, it ties in beautifully. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, notice this, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you're a follower of Jesus, I beg you, please stop walking in darkness. You're a child of the light. We cannot disconnect Forgiveness, justification from transformation, sanctification, becoming like Jesus. We're not set free from the penalty of sin to go and to continue to live in open and unrepentant sin. We must grow in righteousness and holiness. God's grace does indeed cover our sins, but we are not to receive God's grace so that sin can continue to abound in us. We must put to death the sinful desires of our flesh and grow in Christ's likeness. The words of John Owen come flowing forth. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And I'm going I'm to say some difficult things in this next section. I say them in love. Where God's word, the Bible, is clear on sin, we must uphold what it teaches. We cannot get squeamish on these things. We can't get squishy. We have to hold fast to what scripture teaches. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we're judgy as the world says. It means that we are holding fast to the word of God. I say these things in love. You can't say you love Jesus and continue to steal money from work. You can't say you love Jesus and continue to gossip relentlessly about other people. You cannot say you love Jesus and continue to frequent websites and inappropriate pictures and content. You cannot say you love Jesus and be a lazy sluggard. You can't say you love Jesus and continue to cheat on your spouse. You can't say you love Jesus and continue to give yourself over to homosexual sin. You can't say you love Jesus and continue to live together or to live as a, as a gender you weren't born with. You can't say you love Jesus and continue to just shack up with somebody that's not your husband or wife. We stop at forgiveness and we don't encourage people to transformation. That doesn't mean we're mean. It means we are striving for people to uphold holiness and righteousness, to live in light of the justification that was won by Christ at the cross. Jesus said himself, what? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And to be clear, we will struggle with sin. I am a sinner. I fall short of God's glory each and every day of my life. I confess this to you this morning, church. 
Just because you struggle with something doesn't mean you are outside of his grace. But if you continually and willingly give yourself over to sin and there's not one pinch or prick in your conscience, you need to repent today and turn to Jesus. I love you. I want you to hear this. I want to spend an eternity in Christ's presence with you. Please hear my words. Don't take lightly the word of God. And so we find two points of wisdom for us. Sometimes you'll be oppressed to judge or respond to questions regarding your faith or the grace and mercy of Jesus or a difficult question. Here's some wisdom for you, okay? When you respond to people, take your time. Take your time when you respond. Don't be in a hurry. My, I'm going I'm to commend a brother in Christ this morning, and he'll probably be embarrassed, but it's okay. My brother, Ron Bradshaw, is the greatest example of this. You sit in a meeting with him and you talk through some stuff and Ron stays very quiet through the whole thing until the very end. And then here comes the wisdom, right? Slow to speak, processing, thinking through. Take your time. Wise people do not respond immediately. Jesus, we see that in this passage. He listened to the complaint of the religious leaders, thought, kneeled down, wrote in the ground. This is great wisdom for us. How many times have you just blabbered something out and gotten in trouble by it? Guilty, right? Stop and think. Don't just blurt out your response. I'm going to say this purposefully. Take your time. James says this in 119. Know this, my beloved brothers. Hear this. This is scripture. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Jesus shows us the importance of listening, thinking, and then responding. Number two, embrace grace and the change that comes from the grace of God. Embrace grace and change. Will you embrace grace and change today? Jesus calls to you this morning. I beg of you, receive him as Lord and Savior today. If you're a Christian, but there's some pesky sin and struggle in your life, confess that today. We're going to have a a point in time where we receive the Lord's Supper communion that calls us to examine ourselves and confess our sins. Why do we confess? Because Jesus has already forgiven them. Scripture says past, present, future. He's handled it. Receive his forgiveness and live in light of that forgiveness by striving to sin no more. That's what Jesus said. Go and sin no more. I think uh, Colossians 2, 6 and 7 captures this well. The Bible says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, notice this, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Walk in him, rooted and built up. Embrace the grace and change of Jesus. Simply put, just a little off course, remember? If you're a little off course, 
Run to Jesus. So you do not stray too far away and become lost. If you're lost, cry out for Jesus. Hear this good news. He's faithful to forgive and correct to right your path. Amen.